Hello, and welcome to the Rockefeller Center's podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Shadi Mavrazan, and I'm a 22 at Dartmouth. Today, I'm joined by Professor Jason Lyle, who is the inaugural James Wright Associate Professor of Transnational Studies at Dartmouth College. He also directs the Political Violence Field Lab at the John Sloan Dickey Center for International Understanding. His research examines the effects and effectiveness of political violence in civil and conventional wars, examining questions ranging from the relationship between inequality and violence to the effectiveness of aid programs in conflict settings and the dynamics of blame attribution in civil wars. His most recent book, Divided Armies, Inequality and Battlefield Performance in Modern War, is a deep dive into the important relationship between the potential success of armies to their levels of inequality, using data from over 250 conventional wars fought since 1800. Professor Lyle, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, so in throughout our discussions of um, diversity and inclusion in the military, something which you touch up um, on in your book, um, there's an important distinction to be made between a lot of these important terms, right? Uh, particularly between diversity and inclusion. Um, why are both important in the success of an army? And what's the difference between the two? And where do you think the U.S., for example, stands on this? So, yeah, so this is a great question. So, um, and often the book has been read to say that diversity is a good thing. And in general, it can be, but diversity without inclusion can actually be deeply problematic for an army. So the way we look at diversity is in the book is simply the number of ethnic groups that comprise uh, any given army. And what's interesting is that um, political scientists have really ignored sort of the internal workings of armies. And so we try to treat armies as if they were homogenous rather than diverse. Yet diversity has actually been the baseline for almost every single army that's gone to battle since 1800. So the average army that went to war uh, since 1800 has had five main ethnic groups within it. So they're really quite mixed on the inside. So when we talk about diversity, we're really sort of counting the number of, of groups that comprise the army. The inclusion piece, which is really the important piece, is the relationship of each of those ethnic groups to the state. Um, some of the ethnic groups in an army may be full citizens. They may enjoy full rights. They are protected by the state. Uh, other groups may be discriminated against by the state, either economically or politically. And then some groups uh, may be subjugated violently, actually, by the state. And so inclusion here really refers to the degree to which your state views your particular ethnic group as a full member of the society and, and of the state or not. And what's really interesting historically is that many armies are founded on uh, atop the, the backs, basically, of ethnic groups that have been violently repressed by their own state. So they're brought into the army and sent to fight the wars on behalf of a state that actually doesn't treat them as full citizenship. And so what we want to do is we want to have both the diversity piece, the number of groups, and then the inclusion piece, which is how are they treated um, by their state as they're being sent out to war, basically. Great. Yeah. So kind of bouncing on to that, you, you mentioned that there are a lot of factors um, in the way that these groups are treated that makes a difference in, in their effectiveness as a, as a military unit or as part of a national military. Um, do you think what kind of factors do you think that that contribute to this, particularly um, when we talk about, per, for example, I guess, countries with mandatory military service versus uh, nations that kind of are based on a, on a volunteer almost basis? What, what are the key differences we see, like, how do factors, different factors contribute to this? 
Yeah, so there is a um, historically a, a big division between sort of professional armies that are volunteer versus conscript armies. And then we actually see historically a third kind of army, which is really those that um, are essentially like almost like a feudal system where they each ethnic group has to bring forward a certain number of recruits into the given army. Um, what's interesting, though, is despite the ways in which the soldiers come into the army, uh, for the argument, for my argument, what really matters is how they're treated by the state. So you can have ethnic groups that are being brought into even a volunteer army that nonetheless are not being treated as full citizens. In fact, historically, there's been a trend of certain groups in societies looking to military service as a way of improving their ethnic groups or the racial groups um, standing in society. Essentially, the state will say to them, look, come on side. We know we treated you poorly, but why don't you volunteer for the army? And when the war is over, we'll basically renegotiate the social contract and we'll try and improve your your uh, group's position in society. And, and this is the, classically the story of African-Americans serving in the American military, for example. Um, now, historically, when we look backwards, we, we often see that many of the states did not keep those promises. And then it's true, actually, of uh, the United States in both World War I and World War II. African-Americans fought in both wars and yet faced um, violence when they returned home in uh, both wars. And so whether you're a volunteer, whether you're a conscript, whether you're sort of like this feudal system being brought in, uh, when we run the numbers, those you actually the way in which you come into uh, the service doesn't seem to matter as much as just who you are and how the state treated you uh, before. Now, with a volunteer army, you know maybe some of the, the really disgruntled citizens won't um, sign up. But in many of these high mobilization wars, high intensity wars, like a World War One or World War Two, the state often doesn't have a choice in who it gets to bring in. It just needs manpower. And so even if the state is trying to screen out potential uh, groups that it doesn't want or, or feels aren't gonna fight as well, uh, they still have a tendency to be brought inside the army. It's really interesting. So kind of based on, on this potential contribution that a more diverse army has, I guess what about your data led you to um, the conclusion that a more diverse army is indeed perhaps more lethal or, or arguably more successful in the terms of what a military is, military's goals are? Um, what I guess in your data kind of all of a sudden told you, well, oh, diversity's in the picture, all of a sudden we're winning so-and-so battle. Um, what, what about that army, that, that more diverse army increased its lethality or its, its success? Yeah, so diversity does um, a, a couple things. And there's, there's a well-known literature actually in social psychology and now in business studies of all things uh, about the, the diversity bonus. And there's an argument, and I think it's well substantiated now in those fields, that um, diverse teams make better decisions, particularly in complex environments. Uh, because there's a, multi, a multiplicity of sort of views being brought to the table on how to solve something. By contrast, homogenous groups tend to have um, much more susceptible to groupthink or to sort of latch on to the easiest solution, uh, and that, which may not be the best one. And if you take combat, modern combat is an incredibly chaotic, incredibly fluid environment where problem-solving skills are at a premium. Um, diverse teams tend to perform better in response to, say, surprise on the battlefield, or they tend to exhibit greater initiative on the battlefield, or they tend to be able to handle more complex operations where uh, you know, a less diverse army might stumble. Uh, they're able to actually execute these more um, complicated simultaneous movements, or they're better able to use terrain. And again, though, the trick here 
is diversity has these advantages if the diverse voices are included. So if you just had diversity, there's not a guarantee that you're going to actually see better performance on the battlefield. You have to have the inclusion piece too. Otherwise, these diverse voices may not be listened to. So you could have an incredibly mixed army, lots and lots of ethnic groups. And my favorite example is the uh, the Red Army during World War II, which had on its official roster 28 different ethnic groups. But you know the Russian, the ethnic Russians typically ran the show. They had all the senior uh, command positions. They had the, most of the voices in all the decision making at the lower levels, and so they tended to stick to very formulaic strategies that basically used up a lot of manpower and really casualty intensive. Um, so even though they had the diversity, they just didn't have the inclusion that they would need to basically be able to harness this. But if you look historically, it's true. If you have diversity and inclusion, um, lots of good things happen to you on the battlefield, right? Your army tends to be more resilient. You get less desertion. You get less defection. Um, your soldiers are better motivated, so you don't actually have to use violence or coercion against them to fight. Uh, but if you don't have that inclusion piece, then a lot of the, the sort of flip side of that, a lot of the bad things happen to you. Your army deserts, it defects, you have to use violence to fight, you get your soldiers to fight. But again, just it's really the diversity plus inclusion. In order to harness the advantages of diversity, you have to be able to listen to those voices. Yeah, definitely. That linkage is, is incredibly important. And, and with that said, um, it, it makes a lot of sense as to, as to why these, these two things together are jointly so important. Um, but at the same time, we don't really hear these discussions happening mainstream every single day as, as to how we can not only um, from a social, from moral standpoint, um, the importance of increasing diversity uh, in, in, in the military or in any, any workspace, but also the, the structural efficacy that has and, and, the, and, the, and how it makes the military physically more successful. Um, that's not really a conversation we have every day. Um, so does that have a lot to do with, I guess, suppose the data that we currently have on the, on these, on the, on the relationship between these two. Um, if so, how can we, can, can we, how can we collect more of this data or, or what other factors are kind of contributing to this, this current societal and perhaps disconnect between the two right now? Yeah, it's a great question because it's partly a societal disconnect. Although I do believe that there are now voices both in society and inside the military more specifically that are hearing the kind of call for diversity and 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 are not necessarily interpreting it as a sort of call for political correctness, right? They're actually understanding that there is a linkage to effectiveness. So I, I think that conversation is slowly beginning in the military. And, you know, for example, I've had a number now of conversations or, or briefings with the military who are very interested in this. Again, not, not for the political correctness side or, or you know, they decide to shy away from that. They actually just really care about the effectiveness piece. And now once somebody comes along and says, actually, diversity gives you effectiveness, they seem to be much more receptive. But I think academia has been slower to do this, I think, because there's a traditional way of studying military effectiveness, which is really about um, you know, the technology you use on the battlefield or whether you're a democracy or, you know, a, a non-democracy. So we have our kind of standard answers and we have a standard data set that sort of supports those arguments. And what I wanted to do with the book is not just sort of make an argument for diversity in terms of how we think about military effectiveness, but also diversity of data. So one of the, the big things that we did with the book is to go back and record all of these different wars and belligerents that are not in our existing main data set called the Correlates of War. Uh, and so once we do that, 
all kinds of regions of the world, all kinds of new belligerents pop into our data set. And it turns out that the older explanation, older explanations we have aren't correct. And so, but we haven't had much data to be able to test it. And so now with the book coming, um, I'm hopeful that one of the contributions is the data set. And people will look at this and say, well, you know, inequality clearly matters, but what about other forms of inequality? What about, you know, economic or what about gender or, you know, class perhaps. And so I want to spark a broader conversation about various kinds of inequalities. And it's just, we haven't had the data to do it. And so it's coming completely off our radar screen. And now we're starting to get, you know, early reactions of the book is like, yeah, why didn't, why didn't we think about that? Why didn't we have that in our, our, our theories or our models? And so, um, so I think political science is, is slowly awakening, but we're a little, we're a little slow to this conversation, I think. Yeah. And, and with that said, um, the kind of the academic academia is kind of coming to, um, to realizing the importance of, of this field, where, where do you see kind of the status of how active academia is with this now? And, and where do you see, where do you see research in this field kind of going in the future? Yeah. So hopefully the, the book is going to spark a broader conversation, both, I guess, about things I got right and things like I didn't get right, perhaps. Um, but there's a lot of, I think, really interesting natural extensions when we start thinking about inequality. I mean, one is, is clear, again, thinking about different kinds of inequality and how those interact. So it might be that ethnic and racial ones are important, but so too is class. And then when you get those two things working together, you get really negative effects. So in one way, the book may be showing that inequality is bad, but I might be underestimating just how bad inequality is because we don't have these data on these other kinds. So I think that would be one kind of research area, which I think is going to be really fruitful. Uh, the second one is to um, start thinking about how inequality matters for rebel organizations and um, insurgencies, of which there are clearly more than conventional sort of uh, classical kinds of war. And so I think the extension into like the rebel space is going to be uh, really, really interesting. And there's already a little bit of that work starting to come now, people thinking about what the uh, ethnic profiles of insurgents look like, what kinds of stratification are are inside those. It's not much we know about right now, Um, you know, and and they're hard to study. Um, But most of our data boils down to basically like how many rebels are there and, you know, what kind of, you know, command do they have, but we don't know anything about who they are. And the ethnic composition. So I think there's an equally large research program just looking at the other side of looking at, at rebels and things like that. Um, and then the, the third thing, which I hadn't thought of when I wrote the book, but um, been asked about by, of all people, the UN, is to think about how ethnic inequalities might affect the effectiveness of UN peacekeepers. So we know that UN peacekeeping operations are quite mixed, they're quite diverse because they draw typically from at least three or four different um, national contingents and then they're brought into sort of function together as a team. And we don't know how that actually affects operations on the ground. We don't know if that affects, you know, the relationships with the local population, the relationships with each contingent. But as we move into the sort of more aggressive uh, peacekeeping and in, in turn of away from peacekeeping and really into peace enforcement, and start getting closer to a battle space that looks like conventional wars in some cases, um, then arguably inequalities are going to matter there too. So it, it might really matter for thinking about your design of your contingent. Who can work with whom? What are the certain skills they bring? What kinds of status issues are inside each contingent and then across contingents? And sort of engineering a better peacekeeping operation. So 
I think, honestly, I, I think it's something that we really haven't looked at much in political science, the sort of inequality side of it. And I think it can explain a lot. It's just going to require a little bit of heavy lifting to get some new data and, and sort of thinking outside our, our traditional box. But I think the rewards of doing so are actually really high as well. It's a really interesting point, and in particular how, even though it's it's important to understand how diversity and inclusivity can can help our side per se, that, that they can also help us better understand the other side. That's a really, that's an interesting duality there. Um, finally, if we, if it's one thing, I guess, for the, for any military or militia to, to, to appreciate and understand the importance of, of diversity and inclusivity, but it's another thing for them to act on it um, and to actively make that a big part of their, um, of, of how they want to run their military or recruit people. Um, how, how do you think either either in the U.S. or, or abroad, what are what are some ways that or, or ways or values perhaps that the mil- certain militaries have that um, really demonstrate or allow, allow the importance of diversity and inclusivity to shine? Yeah, this is a great question because I think we don't know actually very much on this because on the one hand, you know, you sort of would think, well, equality and diversity, obviously we should have this, right? And yet one of the biggest blocks to actually incorporating diverse groups and and giving them power inside the military is the military itself. And and this is, you know, a story of the United States too, which is halting progress on ethnic uh, lines and, and the move towards inclusion for most armies is not linear, right? It, it's, it sort of stumbles and, and, and stops and, and then sometimes goes backwards. It can be very hard to get to inclusion. It can also be very hard to keep inclusion. Um, the big thing that for me is um, looking now, particularly the U.S. military, but others as well, is what does the composition of the top officers look like? What is this, you know, what does senior command look like? What does promotion look like in there? And, you know, right now you can look at the United States and say it, it, particularly the army talks a good talk about diversity, but is stumbling badly on inclusion. And to the point where every single senior officer in the U.S. military today is um, a white male. And this is, you know, but the military itself is rapidly, rapidly becoming minority dominant. Uh, and projected in the next 10 years to be um, to be a majority minority, essentially. And um, and yet the off senior officer corps does not reflect that at all. And so in order to get the full piece of inclusion, you're, you're going to have to give some of these more marginalized groups a seat at the table. And that's going to be through promotions. Um, that's going to be through from the very lowest levels all the way up and through. That's going to have to be giving um, these, these groups um, opportunities to serve in the billets that allow for promotion, which is typically in U.S. Army combat postings. Um, that's going to mean a different style of leadership so that their voices are recognized and brought into the conversations and rewarded for doing so. Um, so it's going to require you know, deep structural changes into promotion policies, what leadership looks like in terms of who's at the top deck, but also how you exercise um, leadership even at the lower ranks and how you approach problem solving in a more collectivist approach, right, a more co- collaborative approach than the typical top-down army. I mean, in, in some ways, the army is going to have to give up a little bit of its hierarchy um, in order to to make these changes. And, and that's where the real test is going to be. Um, it has a diversity piece. It understands that. It, I think it values that right now. Um, but the inclusion piece is the harder one. And again, without the inclusion piece, you don't get the benefits of diverse, uh, diversity. You usually only get the problems. Uh, and so, so going forward, it's going to be very interesting to see who gets promoted and, and who doesn't. Um, and, and what the rates of retention are, 
um, and and for these sort of black and, and Latino officers in particular, and and do they leave the army at a higher rate than than whites do, which is currently the case? You'll know you're going the right direction if the officer corps begins to look like America, and if the retention rates stabilize equally across different ethnic groups. But um, but there's a long way to go before that'll happen, I think. Yeah, and and on that very critical and important note, uh, I think we'll we'll end there. Uh, thank you so much, to Professor Lyle, for for being here today. I've greatly enjoyed our chat, um, and to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Until next time. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Howard. We hope you will join us for our next episode. And if you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.